Hello, my friends, and welcome to another moment, a Black History Moment with Bo. And I hope you and your family and friends are doing well and have great plans to celebrate this Memorial Day weekend because Memorial Day is considered the unofficial start of summer as beaches and theme parks around the country open for the season. And if you should venture into what was once a Union Cemetery in Charleston, you will find a bronze plaque acknowledging the park as the site of the first Memorial Day where thousands decorated the graves of black soldiers who were reburied there after Confederate soldiers interned them in a mass grave in 1865. The soldiers' family held a parade and decorated the graves on May the 1st 1865. Back then, it was an event that was known as Decoration Day. Today, the holiday is known as Memorial Day. After Congress passed the law in 1968, the move made Memorial Day an official federal holiday that went into effect in 1971. So there you have it, my friends. A moment a moment about Memorial Day. And I hope you're interested enough to look it up and read the whole story. Because it is a solemn holiday about the soldiers that did not return from war. Today, as we slip into darkness, I'm going to tell you a story about determination and fortitude and about Harriet Jacobs. Harriet Jacobs had such a sheltered and carefree early childhood in Edenton, North Carolina, that she was six years old before she knew she was a slave. Her father, Daniel, was a carpenter who supported himself like a free man, although he had to pay his owner $200 a year for the privilege her grandmother, Molly Hornerblow, earned a good money selling her famous pastries to the women of Edenton. It was not until 1819, when her mother died, that Harriet learned that she was someone else's property. Young Harriet knew her grandmother's stories about being freed as a child and captured back into slavery, about later seeing each of her five children sold to different masters. But Harriet's mistress taught her to read and write and sew and led her to believe that one day she would get her freedom. Then the mistress died. In her will, she left 11-year-old Harriet to a three-year-old niece. Harriet's young owner was the daughter of Dr. and Mrs. Norcombe, who had also bought Harriet's younger brother, John, for their son. And slave life at the Norcombs was a nightmare that Harriet had only heard tales about until now. Harriet and John's father died later that year. While his wake was taking place less than a mile away, 
Mrs. Norcom made Harriet stay and decorate the Norcom house for a party. Grandmother Molly grieved to see the children mistreated. She saved every penny she could in the hope that someday being able to purchase her entire family. Molly's mistress, Mrs. Norcom's mother, had always promised to free Molly in her will. But when the old lady died, Mr. Norcom decided that Molly had to be sold instead. Molly's many white friends in Edenton were horrified when she stepped up straight and calm onto the auction block. For a long time, no one offered a bid. Then a woman called out $50. It was the dead mistress's maiden sister who knew Molly well. The sister couldn't read or write, but she marked an X on the bill of sale, then gave Molly her freedom. Now, Dr. Norcom often received high offers for Harriet, but he turned them all down. In public, he said that she wasn't his, but his daughter's. In private, however, he followed a different policy. When Harriet was 15, the 50-year-old Dr. Norcom raped her. The attacks continued and Norcom swore he would kill her if she didn't remain silent. Harriet knew of at least 11 children that Dr. Norcom had fathered, and she had seen him sell them and their mothers away. But Dr. Norcom refused to let Harriet go. Dr. Norcom's behavior was no secret to his neighbors. Samuel Sawyer, a prominent citizen and a bachelor, took an interest in Harriet's plight, and the two soon developed a mutual affection. Harriet knew that her relationship with a white man of her own choosing would enrage Norcom. In fact, she hoped it would. She was now more determined than ever to repel her master's advances. Norcom did become furious, but he rejected Sawyer's offer to buy Harriet. When Harriet's affair with Sawyer produced a son, the doctor reminded her, the new mother, that any child of hers belonged to him. Harriet gave birth at her grandmother's and stayed on there with her baby, Joseph. Norcom's wife threatened to kill Harriet if Norcom brought her back to their home. Molly's house was like a peaceful island in a troubled sea. Her pastry business supported the family in modest comfort. Here Harriet watched little Joseph grow and prayed for his freedom. But across the South, conditions were worsening for slaves. In 1830, North Carolina made it a crime punishable by 39 lashes to teach a slave how to read. The next year, slaves were forbidden to gather for prayer meetings. Slave owners were so fearful of an uprising that they even attempted to deny slaves the refuge of religion. In August 1831, the slave owners Worst fear came true. 
40 miles north of Eddington in Southampton County, Virginia, a slave preacher named Nate Turner led a revolt that left 55 white people dead. The incident sent a wave of terror over the whole region. In Eddington, angry whites shouldered their rifles and marched through town. Among these were many who were too poor to own slaves, but who enjoyed having a lower group to look down on and took special pleasure in this opportunity to harass blacks. Many slave women and children hid in the woods and swamps while their homes were searched and ransacked. Any suspicious document or trace of ammunition, including items planted by the searchers, could be considered proof of a plot. The ruffians searched Harriet's grandmother's house, found a trunk packed with fine linens that she had bought and cared for over the years. When the men asked Molly where a nigger stole such things, she said certainly not from any of their houses. <laughs> Defiance to the bone. The hoodlums raided Molly's jelly cupboard for a taste from each jar before going out to trample her garden. Nate Turner eluded his pursuers for more than two months. Following his widely publicized capture, torture, trial, and execution, white outrage subsided somewhat, although daily patrols continued in some districts. It now occurred to local planners that a little religion among the slaves might not be such a bad idea. It might, in fact, keep them from murdering their owners. You see, my friends, the slave owners and their families were outnumbered, sometimes 20 or 30 to 1, and they lived in constant fear that the slaves someday might creep into their bedroom and destroy them. But Molly and Harriet believed that good would eventually overcome the evil of slavery. When Dr. Norcom learned that Harriet was expecting another child by Mr. Sawyer, he came and chopped off all of her hair. The birth of a daughter made Harriet grieve. She knew that slavery was even harder for women than it was for men. While the little girl was still a baby, Harriet arranged to have her and Joseph baptized. The former owner of Harriet's father invited the family to her house after the ceremony. The old woman brought out a tiny gold chain and fastened it around the baby's neck. Harriet expressed her gratitude but said that she would abide by no chain on her daughter, even one of pure gold. More than anything, Harriet longed to escape with her children from bondage. One day, Mr. Norcom proposed a single condition for their freedom, that Harriet cease all contact with Sawyer. She didn't believe him for a minute. She knew it was another trick. If any white man was going to help her, it was Sawyer. When she refused Norcom's offer, he ordered the three of them sent 
to his son's plantation six miles outside of town. Harriet went about her assigned duties, but kept her mind on one thing, escape. After her master offered to let her move from the cramped slave quarters into the big house, she found her opportunity. One dark rainy midnight, she jumped out a window and ran off the plantation unobserved. She stopped by Molly's house without waking her and looked in on the children. She stayed a few nights at a friend's house, then fled from a search party and spent a week in the thicket. A snake bite forced her back into town where an old woman saved her life, and a slave-owning friend of Molly's offered a place to hide under a floorboard in her kitchen. Dr. Norcom offered a $100 reward for Harriet's capture. Then he placed her young children along with her brother John and her Aunt Betty in jail at his own expense to force them to reveal her hiding place. They remained silent. The talk around Edenton was that Harriet had fled to New York, and he believed this and went looking for her. Sawyer reasoned that the cost of such a trip, along with that of holding the prisoners, might make the doctor willing to consider a sale. Sawyer arranged to buy John, Joe, and the daughter Louisa. Harriet rejoiced to hear the news. She knew that very soon Sawyer would free the children as he had promised. Now Harriet's friends decided it wasn't safe for her to remain where she was. It thrilled Harriet to learn that the place Uncle Joe had prepared for her was back at her grandmother's. Mr. Sawyer had sent the children there to live, and she could not wait to see them again. But she knew there was danger involved, as there was in everything she did now, but she never imagined the difficulties. Her new dwelling was a cramped attic above a storage shed on Molly's patio. It had no windows or air vents, only a trap door. The total darkness meant that rats and mice crawled around her constantly. Roaches and spiders were her other companions. Molly or Uncle Joe or Aunt Betty slipped food and whispered encouragements through a trapdoor at night, but it wasn't safe to tell the children where she was. Harriet could only listen when they played nearby. One day she found a small drill that Uncle Joe had forgotten and made a peephole that let her catch a glimpse of them. Gradually, Harriet's eyes grew accustomed to the dark. She even managed to read and sew. Time seemed as tedious and burdensome as her own movements. The ceiling was so low, for exercise all she could do was crawl. No one knew how long she would have to stay there. Season gave way to season. At first, the heat of the late summer made sap drip from the roof shingles. Autumn was mild. But the winter chill cut like a knife. To Harriet's outrage, Dr. Norcom continued to badger Molly. He bluffed that he knew where the escapee was and would soon have her. With the help of Uncle Joe and his friend Peter, Harriet arranged to have some letters sent to New York to be mailed back to Edenton. 
In them, she wrote to Dr. Norcom and to Molly that she was moving on to Boston, where the abolitionist movement was strong. Dr. Norcom believed what he read. Despite numerous promises, Sawyer still had not freed the children. He decided that Louisa should be sent to live in Brooklyn with his cousin, who had a little girl. Harriet feared that her daughter was being sent as a servant, but she was powerless to halt the plan. Aunt Betty was Harriet's main link to the outside world, and it was Aunt Betty more than anyone who urged Harriet to take a chance at freedom. On the first day of January 1842, the seventh new year that Harriet had passed in the attic, Aunt Betty came with some news. Seven years living in that cramped attic, my friends. That morning, their neighbor, Fanny, had been sold at the annual New Year's auction. As her purchasers were taking her to their new home, Fanny escaped. Harriet felt the same excitement Aunt Betty did. They prayed that Fanny would make it and that Harriet's turn would be next. Word got back to Molly that Fanny was at her mother's house right next door. It made Harriet both sad and hopeful to think of another fugitive so close by. Aunt Betty took ill and died later that year, before Harriet could make their dreams come true. Uncle Joe's friend Peter knocked on the trap door one night to tell her he had found a captain who would take her. Molly cried when she heard it, knowing there was no changing the girl's mind. On the day Harriet was to leave, Peter informed her that the ship had been delayed. Harriet had spent seven years in the attic, but now she wasn't sure she could stand it for one more minute. Peter led Harriet to a small boat that would take her to the big one. The captain welcomed her and showed her to her tiny room. There sat Fanny. He thought she must be seeing a ghost. The two friends hugged for a long time and cried. They knew all too well the world they were leaving. They could only dream of the one that lay ahead. When she arrived in the north, Harriet realized her adventures had just begun. Her first task was to reunite her family. She learned that Mr. Sawyer had transferred ownership of Joe and Louisa to Molly, who was a free woman. Three times Harriet eluded capture by slave catchers, before a woman she worked for arranged to buy her and officially set her free. Encouraged by her brother John, who was gaining a reputation as a lecturer in the abolitionist circle, Harriet offered her talents to the organized anti-slavery movement. Her new friends urged her to write and publish the story of her experiences in bondage. In 1861, a Boston firm issued the first printing of Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl, Harriet Jacobs' Autobiography. In 1896, Harriet's daughter, Louisa Matilda, was one of the organizers of the National Association of Colored Women. Harriet Jacobs died on March the 7th, 1897 in Washington, D.C. She is buried near her brother John in Mount Auburn Cemetery, Cambridge.
Rest in peace, my sisters. And friends, I hope you can get a copy of the story of this great woman and learn the determination that some of our people had to overcome the brutality of the slave life. I hope this session was not too long for you, and I hope you understand why I had to present it to you. Until next time, it has been my honor.